and welcome to this week's episode of the Tapping Up podcast with myself, Daryl, and as always, Ian. A uh, little bit of a fun one for you, Ian. I was talking to Meg, uh, if you want to say, about a podcast for the week, and when we were editing and doing uh, episode 73, I think it was, 72, whatever on one now, I think it's 74, is this one? It's 74, up. this is. Yeah, um, it flies by. But we're doing the editing for 73, and I said, oh, just what, what do I say at the start of this episode? And she literally can recite it word for word now. So hopefully that little the starting point that we've said on every single episode is, uh, has become a household it's really phrase. That, it's not really that hard, to be fair, is it? It's about four words. <laughs> yeah, but on, on the one and, time... As always, Ian. Like, it's exactly. not exactly that hard to remember. There were one time that you weren't on it because I think you were on holiday or whatever. And I had to say, and not always, Ian. And it just didn't sound right. It just does not sound right. So make sure that you don't miss the other one. I will be sure to not miss any more, but um, straight into 298. Yeah, I mean, I, I've been sad all this week, <laughs> as we were just discussing. Do you want to start with at the top of the card then with Vulcan work, work down, or do you want to start at the bottom? Not really. Don't, don't, don't want to talk about it. <laughs> start, at the bottom, like, start at the bottom start, and go up. Right. Yeah. So Dash release of Hujo, um, pretty much as we called to be fair, wasn't the greatest spectacle, was it? But um, no. they b- both uh, wrestling pretty heavy. Um, I thought it was a pretty quiet start to the fight in the first round. Um, big left from Zahujo, actually wobbled uh, Dashvili for one of the first times I've ever seen him wobbled. Takedown from Dashvili, uh, but Zahujo got straight back up. Um, Dashvili then landed a big, big right hand, but Zahujo ended up in the top position. Um, it was a scramble. Uh, Sahujo ended up on his back and he was clinching against the cage. Um, I gave that one 10 9 Sahujo. I did as well, funnily enough. Um, I think there was a few disagreements on that. I think quite a few gave it to Dush Philly. I think it was a pretty clear 2 1 overall, wasn't it? And yeah. ultimately, I mean, we're, we're skipping ahead, but good start to the second round from Sahujo as well. And you thought, actually, maybe he's going to have a bit of luck here. But Dashvili just started working his way into the round. A couple of big counters from him. Took down Sahujo um, uh, with a leg trip. I mean, he's, if you watch, you go, he, he, his main move is single leg and trip rather than the kind of standard double leg wrestling takedown. He always seems to go for a single leg. Um, Sahujo ended up in a nasty guillotine. And this was the first time in the whole fight that we saw sickeningly Zuckerberg, but Dashvili had that fucking guillotine on, didn't he? Super tight. And he's talking to Zuckerberg in the crowd, didn't he? And probably, I mean, Dashvili looks pretty ripped, so he's probably got a fucking squeeze on him. I would probably say another minute, 30 seconds, Sahujo could have been in trouble when he was saved by the bell. But you had Sahujo, uh, sorry, Dashvili talking to Zuckerberg whilst he's got the guillotine in. Which I'm like, what? All right, he's a billionaire. You, everyone probably wants to be friends with a billionaire in case they throw him some cash. But why are you talking to this Facebook prick? He's trying like, to get some investments, got... isn't it? Like, just yeah, I was disgusted by the whole. We'll come on to the whole Zuckerberg thing. Um, and then round three, it, to me, it was pretty clearly clear one all going into the final round. Um, so Hujo seemed to be reluctant to use his left arm. It looked like maybe he'd caught a kick um, in the second round. He wasn't really throwing much. And Dashvili actually, which must be a 
crush soul crushing for for Cejudo. Got picked up, didn't he? Carried across the octagon and then slammed down again in in front of Zuckerberg. And on that slam, Dashvili actually took the record for the third most takedowns in UFC history um, at that point as well. And he went on and he just kind of dominated it. But 10-9 Dashvili, 29-28 for me. And I think that was the scorecards across the board. It was, yeah. And, and he broke quite a few records in that. And I've got a few here. So you've mentioned the most takedowns. He's broken his own bantamweight record for most takedowns with 66 now. He's broken Sterling's bantamweight record for most strikes landed with 1,736. Just to clarify, that wasn't just in this fight. He hasn't thrown that many punches. Uh, obviously, that's overall. And then the last one is the longest win streak in UFC bantam history. Uh, bantamweight history. We, yeah. Um, but he's um, got to be. I mean, again, as much as Dana, we talked about before, hates him and clearly doesn't want him. Dana did come out afterwards and say he's next for the winner of uh, O'Malley, um, Vera, and he's a bad matchup for either of them. And he, I mean, he had to me. be next, didn't he? He absolutely had to be. And he is the best bantamweight in the, in the world, if you ask me. I mean, he, you know, Sahujo did expose him in that first round probably as much as he's he, he struggled uh, recently, uh, I, I would say. But he's just... And he was actually less... Um, forward pressure than he usually is. That's the, the, the you, once you get the mat, he, he, he's like a smaller Khabib in some ways. In terms of, I mean, he wears the is it Pushna? They call it the stupid hat uh, that that Khabib used to wear as well. And he's just constant pressure, and you just can't get him off you. But for the first round, round and a half, that's as um on the outside, as I can remember seeing him, most of his fights, he just, he's just rushing in, charging, and he's all over them like a rash, probably aware that he's fighting a gold medal at wrestling. So that, that, that a tactic might not work quite as well. But neither Cheeto or O'Malley, whoever wins, is going to be able to deal with that. So he, You would assume he, it's going to be O'Malley matching up against Asfili. And like you say, I, I love... O'Malley, I think he's a fantastic character and I think he's good for the sport and I think he's obviously deserved his, his spot where he is at the moment and he certainly deserved to be the champion. It's a difficult, difficult fight for him, um, is, is Dash Philly. And it's always one of those, it's a big what-if situation. I'd have loved to have seen Sterling versus Dash Philly. Yeah, I mean, again, both. it might have been one of those ones that was kind of a bit boring, a bit like Sahujo. Both, again, very similar styles of quite wrestling-heavy Sterling probably has better hands than Zahujo, but, um, you know, um, O'Malley has probably got, let's say, if we go down the route that O'Malley does win, he's got a puncher's chance. He needs to stay on the outside. He needs to keep him off. Now, he did beat Sterling, and Sterling has, has a similar game plan to, to Dashvili, but I think it would be a brave man. I, I would imagine Dashvili would go in as a huge betting favourite against um, O'Malley, if that does come to fruition, is the next is the next title fight. We didn't see a Sahujo retirement, despite what he'd been saying beforehand, did we? And, and I know that obviously he didn't get his chance in the octagon. And I think Dana White had mentioned this was Dashville's night, um, Marab's night. It, it's not a thing to do with Sahujo. If he wants to retire, he can do, and all this type of thing. Because I think he's still pissed off at that for retirement in the first place, which is quite funny because obviously he's got his issues with. Dashvili and he's also got his issues with Sahujo, but 
does he end it, do you think? Is he 37 Well, now? he said he was going to, and he got pretty, as you say, when you get picked up like that as a wrestling gold medalist, like that's about, I mean, that's the same as if you're a pure out-and-out striker and you get sparked out. You know, there, there couldn't be a more probably embarrassing end to the fight like that for, for someone like Zahujo who's prides himself on his wrestling and say gold medalist. It was pretty convincing and it's got to be a pretty soul-crushing defeat for him. But I, I agree that he, he'd been silent in the aftermath and he hadn't come out and said that he was definitely going to retire like he'd said beforehand. But um, we'll see. You know, he talks a lot of shit, Zahujo, so he might well carry on and try and hang around for the money. But his time as a top ranked bantamweight or even if you drop back down to featherweight is done i would say yeah absolutely um so next white fight was obviously jeff neal versus um ian gary pretty quiet first round to be honest with you i thought it was a bit bullshit didn't not a great deal happened probably gary edged it 9-10 sorry um i would have said it was not a great Certainly was a pretty shit fight, to be honest, compared to most Ian Gary fights. I think um, Gary was obviously a bit wary of uh, Neil's power, was staying on the outside. Neil just wasn't able to get close enough to Gary to implement any kind of grappling or or dirty boxing uh, that he's known for. Um, And the second round, again, was very quiet. Gary was just staying at range, picking his shots, couple of good knees down the middle when uh, Neil did try to clinch. That was a really close round. You could have definitely argued it either way, but I went for 10-9 Gary. Um, third round, there was a huge body kick to start from Gary that, you know, he, he does have very, very quick and impressive kicks. Um, but ultimately, there wasn't a great deal to talk about, if I'm totally honest with you. The only stat I had is that, Gary did end the fight with 52 to 39 on the significant strikes. Um, I had it 30-27. I thought he won all three rounds, even the the close one I gave to him. Judge's decision um, was um, split decision victory, wasn't it? He got um, two, weirdly, two 30-27s. So in agreement with what I'm saying, the other judge gave it 28-27 to Neil. Which was you're wondering Judging what in a nutshell. he's watching. Yeah, I, I um, think you got it spot on. I think it was it's a comprehensive win for Gary. I had a question for you on this, and not specifically about the fight, but sort of the aftermath and the build to his fights in general. The way that he purports himself and, and tries to show his character in the UFC at the moment seems to be a complete and utter mixed bag. There are certain times where he talks very sincerely and talks about, I think he'd mentioned he has a, a crying ritual before fights on a, a recent podcast um, and obviously talks about how it can affect you in terms of the sport itself. But then obviously in the build-up to fights, he starts talking about how he's one of the best fighters in the world. He's going to make sure that he puts Neil out and knocks him out and things like that. On the back of a, a victory like this, which for me was comprehensive, I think he's spot on. I think it was 30-27. Um, if I had to judge it, but comprehensive in a way that, unlike the main event, which we'll come on to, you sat there thinking, yeah, he won. And, you know, I don't doubt they won. But was it impressive? No, not really. Is he trying to be a bad guy in the UFC? A little bit like 
you know, Strickland in, in some sense or uh, a good friend who um, Edwards ended, uh, Colby. And, uh, yeah, I just don't know what he's he doing. He called out Colby, didn't he? And I'd like to see that just because I think he would beat the fuck out of Colby. And any time that Colby gets his ass handed to him, I'm up for. 100%. What I did quite like was, so the, we didn't actually talk about it in the build-up, but had you seen the little kind of, there was a bit of backlash from his victory. Um, but did you see the kind of thing that happened? We didn't even talk about it last week in the build-up to the fight. So there was this little bit. Did you see about Ramp him, him supposedly being on Rampage's podcast? Yeah, briefly. It? I saw it very briefly. I think bits on social media. I didn't see the in-depth story though. So, so what happened was he was basically supposed Rampage had invited him onto his own podcast. I didn't even realize Rampage had a podcast. Uh, this is Quentin Rampage Jackson, for those who don't know, former UFC light heavyweight champion, real old school, you know, legend of the sport, really. He used to come in, massive chain around his neck, howling, like, obviously, he's been in film since, most famously, he was B.A. Baracus in the uh, A-Team film. But um, Gary was booked on the podcast and then said, pulled out on, let's say, the Monday of fight week. And Rampage went on a bit of a fucking verbal rant about him pulling out saying why the fuck have you pulled out all this and gary quite in some ways i don't think he was wrong in this said well i'm in the middle of a fucking training camp this is like a week out from one of the biggest fights of my career i'm not fucking around going on a podcast anyway after that rampage tweeted and said that he thought that uh gary convincingly lost to neil and said that he would come out of retirement to fight Gary, because <laughs> Gary is stealing Neil's win bonus. So there was a bit of shit going on about that afterwards, which was a bit of a sort of side circus to the actual fight itself. But um, I love Rampage. Hang on, 300. I, mean, I, don't, I don't know if you've seen him now, but I mean, Rampage is one of those fighters who the best way to probably say it is he hasn't stayed in fighting shape afterwards. <laughs> he, uh, he, he looks like he's been eating all the cheeseburgers in the world and he'd be lucky to make 300 pounds i would have thought uh let alone um anything near fucking 170 but that was just a little bit of a side story that i thought was quite uh funny out of all of it that we didn't mention last week but um yeah i mean gary got up the rankings calling up kobe's probably a sensible move given how shit colby looked against uh edwards last Definitely his time's over and it's probably a good, it'd be a good name to anchor his resume to carry on boosting up the rankings. And as I say, I I think you agree, uh, can't stand Colby. So any yeah. chance to see him get his ass whooped, particularly if it could be by a knockout, um, sign me up. Yeah, 100%. The only thing, I, it'll be on a numbered card, I'm sure, if that does happen, but his hype train as, as Colby and I get that he tries to sell fights by doing the whole you know I'm a, a MAGA supporter and I love Donald Trump and I'd get down on my knees in front of him if he ever come and came to my house and all this bullshit but people I think grow tired of it you've got to show something in the the octagon alongside the big talk like me and you, you can't, exactly you can't sit there and I mean that's how Connor got so big was that he gave the talk but then when he was giving it all the mystic match, I'm going to knock him out in the first round, and did it. And he did it, yeah. But then that 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 carries weight. When you talk a load of shit, you give it all this, and then you get your ass comprehensively whooped. That that can only last two or three fights before people aren't interested anymore, and just say this is just some old guy talking up a fight to try and get viewers. 
but no one really believes in him. So yeah. that's what Colby's done for me. That last fight showed that he's spent, he's, he's a spent force, his time's done. So just feed him to the wolves for me, just, you know, a couple more fights and see him get his ass kicked, kick him down to fucking Bellator or some other shitty organisation where he might get a few more wins. Put him on bare knuckle. That'd be a, a good uh, proper see him get his head, his head kicked in then. Yeah, put him up against, uh, what's his name? Who's the fuck? Mike Perry. What's his fucking <laughs> teeth getting knocked out? That'd be good to watch. But um, on to the co-main then, I suppose, which I thought was probably the best fight out of the main card. Uh, Whitaker Costa. Um, Costa came out pretty aggressive. Um, good early movement from Whitaker. Uh, Costa was fl- fry- fl- fl- throwing some amazingly quick and untelegraphed head kicks. I don't know if you watched throughout this. He, he, he threw a number of these head kicks that just came from nowhere. Um, and right near the end, he caught Whitaker with an absolutely monstrous spinning heel kick that proper wobbled Bobby Knuckles. He was all over the all over the shot, wasn't he? And I tell you what, one what a chin, but he was saved by the bell there. If that had been another yeah. 10, 20 seconds, Costa probably would have sworn him and might have knocked him out. But it, yeah, I think saved by the wobbled, bell is a, that's about as wobbled as I've seen Whitaker. I would say in a fight, apart from losing when he did, um, you know, to to Izzy and some of the knockout artists, he was a properly chicken legged one the up from that kick. Um, but it was too near the end of the round. The funny thing for me is a lot of people were saying that that kick potentially won the round for Costa. I disagree because I thought Whitaker did the, the the better work for the rest of the round, so I gave that ten nine Whitaker. Um, Costa comes out in the second round head hunting and particularly if you start to see Costa's legs his uh, thigh in particular is swollen like fuck from where he's been taking massive calf kicks from from Whitaker Um, the funny thing was is if you looked by the end of the second round the damage Whitaker's face looked far considerably worse he had quite a lot of blood on it he it he was marked up a bit whereas Costa particularly wasn't but Costa had absorbed some massive body kicks in his leg in particular. He'd had to change stances towards the end of the second round because he was just, his left leg was just getting chewed up by Whitaker. So I gave that 10-9 Whitaker as well. Um, and then for me, Costa suddenly found his kind of game, but too late. Again, another couple of big kicks in the final round. Um, and there was a bit where he gave it the old kind of, come on, let, let's throw down, uh, you know, like we've seen with with some people in the past. But Whitaker's too smart for that. Whitaker was like, nah, I'm not engaging in that shit. Stayed on the outside. And I think rather controversially, I thought Costa won the last round 10-9. So I had it 29-28 Whitaker for me. Two judges agreed 29-28. But I think those judges gave the first round to Costa as opposed to the last round. And one one judge had, again, talk about an outlier, had it 30-27 to Whitaker. Which it would never, yeah, it it would never a shutout. Um, I actually agree, weirdly, and this must be a first for us ever, because it's the second time I'm saying it. I actually agree with you entirely there. I thought that the first round was Whitaker's. Uh, Second round, clearly Whitaker's. There's no dispute in that. And I thought the third round were Costa's because I thought that Whitaker looked as though he was a little bit less um, heavy anymore. He looked like he was trying to back off. Um, he obviously 
I think at that point thought he'd won the fight, so didn't need to do as much. And whether it's a gas tank thing or whether he was just slowing down because there was no need to really go all, you know, hands to the deck in that type of thing. Um, but I think Costa took that. I also think that, I don't know why UFC fighters do this, and you rarely see boxers do it these days, but they do still do it, and it's, it's a combat sport thing. Doing the whole, let's throw down and oh, come and come and fight me, for me, normally demonstrates to the judges that actually you think you're losing this fight and you want that person to come and engage your with you. Your only hope is, to, yeah, yeah, your exactly. only hope, like you're losing on the squat, which I think probably Costa did know. Yeah. And Costa, again, we've said before, he's got frightening power. He's not a man you want to go toe-to-toe with. And But it's because too smart for that, as you say. He, he, he knew exactly what was going down, you know, and... Only thing I'd say with you, Whitaker's obviously had a, a pretty long title reign, used to, to to five round fights. I actually thought he was genuinely fucked in terms of tiredness in in, in the set, in the third round, and I thought that slowing down, I wouldn't put it down to him coasting, shall we say, because he knew he had the first two rounds in the bag. I thought the pace of the fight had got to him, which is not a good sign. And maybe again, Father's time is perhaps catching up with with, with Whitaker. But Whitaker was another one that, when I look at the things that we talked about before, he was so well rounded, and that included an incredible gas tank. Um, but yeah, I, I thought he looked surprisingly tired in that third round. Costa is because he's so muscular and so explosive, is pretty well known for kind of tiring himself out. But he actually looked the fresher fighter in that third round. But um, yeah, I, I don't think that one big heel kick in the first round was enough to win the round because Whitaker had put far more significant strikes on him in terms of volume. Um, so I disagree with the judges on that. But as you say, it was Whitaker, Whitaker, Costa for me. Whereas I think the judges that gave us the same scorecard gave it Costa, Whitaker, Whitaker. I don't want to talk about it, Ian, but I feel like we've come on to that part of the show now. Um I mean, Tapora had said all fight week that he would be the new featherweight king when the uh, when UFC 298 came around. He had changed his, uh, I think it was his Instagram or his Twitter handle uh, to say that he'd got an extra win on his, his record, to say that he was the new champ. And obviously, that's quite <laughs> high-level confidence when you're going against... It takes a 100% because that can blow up in your face immediately. You're coming up against, you know, Volkanovski, who has dominated this division for four years. He's been the champion. He's making his sixth title defence. He's never lost at 145 pounds. And the statistic that I didn't see until afterwards, and I feel like it's my own fault and I've got to apologise for not looking it up. The statistic that has been looming over and large is that, in the UFC, fighters that are 35 and older fighting for titles at £170 and lighter. Or less. Yeah. Don't do well. No, they're 1 in 21. 1 win and 21 losses against younger fighters. And obviously it's now mm. 1 in 22. That is outrageous. You can get aware of it at the higher weight divisions, I think, because as you say, maybe because of the fact that, as you say, you've got the knockout power. But yeah, I I had seen that stat as well. And I I wasn't aware of it till they brought it up during the fights. And I was like, oh, this is not a good omen for Volk. Uh, Volk Volk is, I think, the oldest UFC champ at 35 or was. Um, 
And as you say, you, you've got to take your hat off to Tapura's confidence all the way through. Um, the thing that I did think, that I've, I've got a couple of notes here, that um, Tapura is a weird one because I saw that he was born in Georgia. He lived in Georgia till he was 15, but then moved to Spain. And now he fights out of Spain. Um, and he's obviously his nickname is El Matador. Um, he was the first Georgian BJJ black belt, apparently with his brother. His brother was the second. So I don't know if his brother is a UFC fighter or, or just a jiu-jitsu guy. Um, and it was also quite impressively for Volk, which again shows you the strain. And I think people, Kap Karu uh, Usman has come out and talked about this before. The, the, sometimes the pressure and strain of being a title holder, it was Volk's ninth straight fight for the title. So when you consider his, his, his bantamweight fights, as well as the two fights up at lightweight, that has innate pressure that ultimately starts to tell. Um, the funny thing was, is you'd said it to me, I don't think we talked about it on the podcast, or, or perhaps we did, forgive me if we did, but you'd said to me that Tapura had opened as the betting favourite, and I said to you, didn't I? There's, I was like, there's no way, that'll flip. And I remember watching very clearly when they brought it up that Volk was the favourite by the time the uh, the fight uh, started. And to be honest with you, Volk looked pretty good from the outset. He was very, very, very kick-heavy, hardly throwing any punches, uh, Tapura, you know, apart from that, that that BJB black belt, which he very, very uses, is very boxing heavy. But he just looked to me like a man that was waiting for his opportunity. He was hardly throwing anything. He was walking around. He's crunched up, like totally. He reminded me of like a, a younger Dan Henderson. And I've told you, just Dan Henderson, all he had was an overhand right. But if he hit you with that overhand right, even just touched you, you're out. And uh, and Tapura was just kind of so taut and tense looking for that punch in that first round. And I thought Volk easily took the first round. But there were a couple of moments where Tapura kind of, there was one in particular, big, big uh, um, shin kick where it nearly knocked Volk off his feet. And you thought, fucking hell, that's some power. But he looked like he was just loading up, waiting for that opportunity. And then Tapura came out pretty strong uh, in the second round. But the thing I noticed, and, and Bisping brought it up during the commentary, was that whilst Volk was moving really nice angles, every time he was kicking and exiting on the sort of kicking and moving, he just seemed to be leaving his chin out. And, it, it, you know, they would mentioned that him and Rogan on, on, on the, the commentary were saying, he's got to watch that chin. And then all it took was just one right hook. And you've got to take your hat off to Pitapura in terms of the pressure. But that one right hook just fucking folded Volk, didn't he? One follow-up and he was already out. And he was like on the floor for a good two or three minutes afterwards. You know, that's fucking scary, scary power at featherweight. Yeah, I mean, it's quite clear for anyone that's listened to this podcast for a considerable amount of time that I'm a, a massive fan of Volk and, and I've been for a considerable amount of time. I, it's difficult to see one of your favourite fighters get folded not once but twice in a row now in, in such a short period of time. I I don't know what it is. I, I agree that in the first round he looked like he might have been getting back to the old um, you know, featherweight king Volk that we knew. He wasn't going up against Islam, of course, which is always helpful. But the chin thing is, is quite notable. And I think even before it was mentioned in commentary, 
it's really, really obvious that he's sticking it out. Now, I don't know if that was a combination of just being lax in general or, and giving Tapura a bit of uh, his props here, he was targeting the body quite considerably with his strikes. And if you watch just before the knockout, he's throwing the combination to the body, almost trying to get to, uh, to uh, get Volkanovski to drop his hands at the perfect point where then that right hand comes out of nowhere and then it's like, good night, it's done. So it's a bit of both, I think. I mean, the worst thing is, is like, there's, we, we talked about it before that there would be, I mean, Tapura even called out McGregor, which is ridiculous. I mean, he had Tapura has fought at lightweight, to be fair, but he said, didn't he, something about Conor McGregor, if you want, you know, if you want, if, if, if you still got some balls, I'll see you in Spain. And I think the UFC, this is one of those ones where it gives them a chance to launch into a new market, whether that's Georgia or Spain for a main event. But the thing that I find a bit cringy about Tapura, he's even got, I don't know if you've seen any pictures of these, he's even got almost the same tattoos as McGregor. Have you seen this? So if you actually look, he's <laughs> no. got like, if you, if you pulled him up now, if you pulled up a picture of like, you Google it while we're talking, but... They've got both got like a line tattoo down their back, which is very, very similar. And Tapura also has a very similar chest piece to McGregor, whereas McGregor's got like, is it an ape? And underneath now he's got the tiger, but he's got an ape. But if you actually look at them both together, like the front and the back, Tapura's almost looked like he's tried to copy McGregor's tattoos to some degree. And that is just going to even add to the inevitable comparisons of, you know, the, the meteoric rise called on the champ, you know, someone who had, you know, as you say, the McGregor, Oldo, McGregor, you know, Volk, Tapura, you know, they're going to be very, very similar. But yeah, if you actually look at Tapura's tattoos, it's literally like he's tried to copy McGregor. I, I, I've never, weirdly, in all the time that I've watched this, and despite McGregor being as famous as he is, I've never actually looked at his tattoos before. What the fuck is on his chest? Like, it looks like a a monkey. It's a gorilla, a isn't it? It's a gorilla with a crown. Yeah, yeah the What's chest coming piece. out of his mouth? I don't know. Uh, he's had it added to, and then he's got now it's got like a tiger over his belly button that he never used to have. But And then his name... <laughs> But if you look at like Volk's got, a, sorry, Tapura has got a very similar sort of yeah, chest he's got a piece tiger. like that. Yeah, um, someone's that. coming out of the tiger. There's a man. And then have a look at the back as well. Have a if you put Google both of they both got this kind of line down right down the sort of spine as well. But like it, Riley it, Reed, who's Riley Reed? <laughs> Google it later. But it's kind of cringy that like it, it looks like he literally almost wants to be McGregor. Like it looks like to me when you see like the chest piece, you see the back tattoo, you're like, look, come on, man. You've literally modeled yourself on McGregor to the point of taking the same toes. I can see in terms of the, the back one. So McGregor's, it looks like thorns, it? but it's got the angel wings at the top, which... Tapura also has the angel wings at the top. I don't know if that's like a religious thing, though, whether um, it's just the design or what, but I see what you mean. They are very similar. I mean, they are. are, It's got, and you said, that's no, that's not a coincidence to me. Someone doesn't just say, oh, yeah, I'll come up with this. That's like, oh, I think I'm going to get a fucking tattoo like McGregor. But um, 
So, I mean, the question, given the performance, does he have the power and the charisma to replicate Connor? No. No. The, the charisma, power maybe. Um, you know, his ability is unquestionable, and I think he still has a, a high ceiling. Um, God knows where he goes from here in terms of who he takes on, whether we see the Vault rematch. I don't think we're going to see a Connor fight because no one cares. Um but he just doesn't have that charisma. It, I don't think anyone does. I think it's very difficult. And I know the UFC has always wanted to replicate what they had with McGregor. But realistically, no one's no one is Conor McGregor. McGregor is such an outlier. And the reason he was such a big star and continues to be such a big star is because he's almost a one in a million. People will try to replicate that. They might get similar tattoos as him, for example. But they're never going to be that flash in the pan and, and that, you know, lightning in a bottle that McGregor was for those period of years where he was essentially sending the UFC into the stratosphere in terms of popularity. People who weren't really interested in UFC would watch just to watch what he would do next. And the unpredictability that was there that he brought to combat sports was immeasurable and uncomparable for me or incomparable for me. Yeah, and I think you, you get across the UFC now, there's people that you could argue have elements of Connor. So <clears throat> does Tapura have the fighting ability in terms of that meteoric rise, laying out champions and things like that? Potentially, he hasn't got the smack talk. You've then got people who are, let's say, probably in the upper echelons of the smack talking ability, like Paddy, but he's a shit fighter. So you've got like you, you've got all these elements of McGregor scattered around the UFC where people are trying to replicate it. There's not a single package like that. And then you know the, the closest to me in terms of a fighter with the ability of Connor is Poetan, but he can't even speak English, so he doesn't say <laughs> shit. So he doesn't like he says he's like the complete never smack talks, doesn't come out and ever says talk just comes out in his, you know, um, Amazonian tribe garb. And gets the job the done. People. Yeah. Exactly. So you've got all these people that, like, you add you add three or four of them together and you might have a McGregor. But I agree with you that it, 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 he's Tapura isn't a McGregor. Um, one thing I did think was interesting because you had, obviously, because, again, I'm not really quite sure what Tapura, what nationality Tapura is, Allying himself to, if that's the right word, because he's say born in Georgia, but been been in Spain since he was fifteen, and he's one of these that has like the combined flag. So don't you? When he won, had half a Georgian flag, half a Spanish flag, but obviously um, Dashvili is Georgian. Now I don't know if you see all the scenes in Georgia. I forget the name of the capital of, of Georgia, but this was like seven o'clock in the morning, pouring with rain, and they had put on big screens and there are literally tens of thousands of people in the rain getting pissed on watching these two Georgians fight. So for me, whereas um, um, Dana's come out and said, I'm gonna, um, I'd like to do Spain for Tapura's first title defence. I would say Georgia would be a far better one. Go to Georgia, take Dashvili, versus whoever the, who's going to fight there 
they could put on a massive event there. I don't I, mean, I don't don't know what facilities there are in Georgia if there's somewhere that can hold a 30 40,000 pound uh, thousand crowd, but the the amount of people that were out to watch the two of them was was impressive. And I also saw in the build up, I don't know if you saw them uh weight cutting together. So there was a few bits of footage went there that, that you know because they're both Georgian in terms of like that that they were supporting each other through what looked pretty tough weight cuts. I think both of them probably have to cut a fair bit of weight to get to their respective weights. But Georgia would strike me as the next kind of the UFC is trying to target an area where it suddenly can jump on the back of a couple of people looking pretty good. I think it would be there rather than Spain because even if you put Tapura in. Now, I couldn't name you another fighter out of Spain. It flashed up um, on the stats in Tapura's fight. that He's one of five fighters fighting out of Spain in the UFC. Fuck knows who those other four are. There'll be a few female fighters, I think. Just before we move on, just so that you're not kicking yourself, it's a, the capital of Georgia is Tbilisi. A bit of Correct. fun fact there. Yeah. Yeah. Did you did you look it up by the way? Did you see did you see any of the, the footage? Because it's yeah. it is yeah. it is pretty impressive how many people were out there in the rain at seven in the morning watching. But um like us on a time, night out after Ponte, isn't it? Time will tell. Um I mean I, I agree with you. I don't know who the obvious I mean, I, I completely agree with Volk in that due to the length and um duration of his reign, he deserves the instant rematch, but equally two pretty devastating KOs within the space of four months, he needs some time off. He can't be fighting a quick turnaround again, no matter how much he's told us he he needs fighting and things like that. You know, when you've had two pretty devastating knockouts like that, you need probably eight, nine months out of the game to let your brain recover. And I don't think so. I think there's going to have to be another fighter in between that. And you could argue, maybe, I mean, we're going to come on to it in a second, but would the co-main event of UFC Mexico, which we're going to discuss in a minute, of Rodriguez Ortega be the natural option, potentially, if it's not Volk? Yeah, I mean, the issue that you've got, the UFC tends to do this, where if you don't get your immediate rematch, very rarely... In, there are circumstances that it does happen, but very rarely you can sit on the sidelines and be told, yeah, don't worry about it. You can have your, your rematch wherever you want. You'd take your time out and, and you recoup and, and get back to a better mental and physical state. So I get the feeling, alongside what you just mentioned, that Volk was very clear that he needs fighting and he needs to be back in the game. I think that the next time you see him fight will be for the title once again. Um, I, I think it'll be in Spain and I think it'll be this year, unfortunately, uh, for, for Volk in terms of not having that time to rest. It might be that these two knockouts have done him good, yeah, clutching at straws here a little bit. Yeah. Um, but... <laughs> like, when has been knocked out cold done anyone good? Like, at 35, like, I feel like, I know you love Volk, you're a bit of a super fan, but try, there's, there's trying to make the best of a bad situation and then there's just... Yeah, that's blind that. hope. Yeah, yeah, they, they were they were devastating but knockouts as well. But I agree with you that if the it's same as Izzy, Izzy's going to take this prolonged period on the sideline. There's no doubt Izzy's first fight back will be for the title. There are certain people that have earned that right, and nine straight title fights 
11 of which, sorry, seven of which you've won and steamrolled the whole division like Volcaz, you can't deny him that. There's certain people that just have, that just fairness just dictates when he when he's fit and well enough, he deserves that immediate rematch because of what yeah, he's I, done, his, his, in, his body of work. In his streak, he was obviously in the top five pound for pound um, in terms of the, uh, the UFC. I mean, yeah. you take John Jones, take take John Jones out of it because of his on-off ability. But for the last three or four years, it's been him and Makachev, really, isn't it? And, and had he them. taken out Islam, he would have been the pound for pound. So it was that close. And I suppose that's where that prestige comes into account when he obviously comes back from whenever this period of time that he has that he takes off. If he does, I, you would hope the fairness would dictate that he'll get another shot. I'd just like to see him take some time off because I think, he one, he deserves the immediate rematch. And if he come back in another three or four months for that fight, was tempted back by money, by timing because they were doing Spain, and he gets knocked out again, that's curtains for me. Three that's, on the bounce. It's hard. But in that out. space of time as well, that's, that's, yeah. that's CTE time. At 35. Like, you need to take some time off. You know, you need to be sensible he needs, you know, he's got the same coaches as Izzy. So, obviously, Izzy's coaches have been quite sensible following his couple of bad losses that, all right, three years or whatever, Izzy was, was saying, is probably a little bit too long. And Volk doesn't have time on his side like that. But I wouldn't like to see him fight before the end of the year. You know, October, November, December, maybe. But he definitely should not be coming back before then. And I think... There's, there's always if buts and, buts and maybes. And I saw a couple of really good articles that said, actually, this was to, the fact that he lost so convincingly to Makachev takes away from what Tapura did. And a lot of people were saying, do you know what? I think Tapura would have done that to him had he not taken the, the, the fight against Makachev. But they were all, in my mind, that's a big question mark. And that, I'm not quite so sure it would have gone down the same way if he hadn't got his head kicked into oblivion by Makachev three months ago. I think I, I agree. a massive I, part. He's got to be looking back at taking that fight. I get that he will have made you know, some money from it and, and a considerable amount of doing so. And we spoke about it at the time that there was a chance for greatness. And if you've got a chance to be a champ champ, he would have been pound for pound number one almost certainly had he won that at that point, at that point in time. But I do think that looking back, that's such a fundamental mistake to have taken that fight on such short notice, to which point he hasn't just lost the chance for the legacy fight, which he would have almost certainly got that rematch later down the line had he have not taken that at that point in time. And I'm sure he would have fought Islam again, you know, in a year or so time had he not have fought that second time. But he's lost that. He's lost that opportunity. He's now lost his title within the space of, what, four or five months? So uh, you've got to be looking back at taking that fight and think that's a mistake. It was the short notice for me. I mean, yeah. again, you want that. Again, you can understand the opportunity, but taking on the pound for pound guy who has just beaten you a few months before on, was it 12 or 13 days notice? I mean, ballsy again, you, that, that's kahunas for you. That's someone that you can, you know, he will go down and be remembered for that as, as a warrior, someone that didn't turn down fights a bit like, we're sort of going off topic a little bit here, but one of the things that they announced, um, and I know you're a bit disappointed where I'm not quite so much, 
was the main event for 300 during this. So they came out, didn't they, and announced that it's Poetang Jamal Hill. Uh, and and during that, um, uh, Dana said that uh, what basically what a stud Leon Edwards was, that he'd been offered three different opponents during that time, said yes to all of them, and none of them came to fruition. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and I, I, if, you had, if you had to guess, I would go, correct me, you by all means tell me if you think you're wrong here. I reckon that was Kamaev. Yeah. Rachmanov. Yeah. And who's the other one? But they're all. It's got, all... It's got to be Bilal. It's got to be Bilal. Bilal. But they, I think they're all Muslims, aren't they? So I think the it was the closeness to Ramadan yeah. that was the problem for all of those three fighters. But. But, but for him, particularly for him to say against like uh, Rachmanov, that's a fucking, yeah, bring it on. I was Fearless. just like, fuck me, fucking yeah. fair play. And here's the craziest stat for you that I read. So Volk was by far and away, I think he had the fifth longest reign ever in the UFC in terms of title fights. I did at one point start making some notes of the numbers and I've lost them now. I can't find them, but at the fifth longest reign ever, in terms of title fights. Edwards is now the longest reigning champion in the UFC, and he has reigned as welterweight champion for 35% of the time that um, Volk was champ, which is quite impressive, really, and has kind of snuck up on you. Now, all right, he's only had two fights, I think, in that period of time. Um, but for him to now be the longest reigning UFC champion uh, is super impressive. I, I sent you a message, didn't I, on the, the morning after this? Um, and we were talking about, obviously, the disappointment of, of watching Volt lose and stuff. But I, I was saying to you how, and we, I think we agreed on this, how quickly things can change in the UFC and how you look back a few years where, you know, when Usman was absolutely dominant at that division at welterweight, you had obviously um, Sterling was dominant at bantamweight, and then you had Volk, who's been running the show uh, at featherweight for four years. And all of a sudden, all these people that looked like they'd been dominating sport and would never lose the perch, a younger, hungrier, faster fighter comes along, and we're all change. Yeah, and as I, as I said to you in those messages, like I've been watching obviously a lot longer than you. And the evolution of the sport, again, 30 years it's been going to the UFC. I've probably been watching for 20. But when you look back at what were the killers of the era when I first started watching it, your, your, your Chuck Liddell's, your, your BJ Penn's, where they were amazing at one facet of the game and then kind of could piece together other bits. And then you get these guys that come out of nowhere, like Rachmanoff, who has probably been training MMA since he was like three. Do you know what I mean? They're like that. What's that? Straight what's that out of the womb. What's that darts kid? Um, Littler. Littler. Um, but like, there's people like that now that are probably training MMA at like two or three, like Tiger Woods was at two. Now that, you know, like, you know, they come in together, they're, they're born with it. Whereas, you know, Randy Couture, I think, came into the UFC at, say, 35. I think he fucking became champion at like 40 you know, that type of thing. You've got these kids now that are growing up doing, not just doing jiu-jitsu or wrestling and then adding to that. They're, they're training mixed martial arts from a really young age. 
and the, the evolution is just crazy. And I don't think we've even scratched the surface. You know, we talk about John Jones being the, 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 the GOAT. There is someone out there that in, you know, five or 10 years time will probably make John Jones look ridiculous. Tommy Aspinall. <laughs> it's not that man yet, but there, there's, there's some there's someone coming soon that will be that will just blow everybody away like that. And uh, I mean, again, it's just worth a reminder. Everyone was going on about Tapura, how young he is, how brilliant he is. That was his first title fright at 27. John Jones was the light heavyweight champion at 23. So again, just never heard a, of him. Just as a gentle reminder to anyone that seems to forget about Johnny Jones because of his lack of, um, you know, uh, inactivity recently. And maybe he's getting a bit of grief for wanting to fight old man Stipe and, and the rest of it. You know, he he will leave a legacy that is hard to beat. Let's quickly talk about uh, UFC Fight Night Mexico because you briefly mentioned it and we have been... The 50 minutes of UFC this time, people have got a treat this week, haven't they? Um, the, the main thing for me, I mean, we won't get into that much detail, but um, the co-main event for me is far more interesting than the main event. So main event is uh, Brandon Moreno versus Brandon uh, Royale. So that's the number one ranked flyweight versus number ranked, three ranked flyweight. Uh, Moreno is obviously the former champion. Um you know, had his quadrilogy, didn't he, with um, Figgy? Um, he did. And uh, he's already beat Royale um, by, I think it was unanimous decision uh, in, in, a, in a previous fight. So you would probably back Moreno in that one. But the co-main event for me, as you say, is far more interesting and could be, but sort of looping back to what we were saying, maybe a, a title eliminator for Tapuri's first fight. So you've got Yair Rodriguez as the number two ranked featherweight. So he's actually ranked higher than um, Tapura was against the number four ranked Brian Ortega. Uh, Funny enough, Ortega, both of these guys at, at different points have been the rising stars, the next big thing, and then had, had, had their hype train derailed. Um, Rodriguez's last fight... Um, I can't remember who he beat, but he beat someone pretty good. Um, Ortega has been out for a while injured, but his last fight was a TKO loss to Rodriguez. So this is a rematch with some with a bit of bad blood between them because they've already fought. Rodriguez lost his last fight, didn't he? I thought it was against Volk. Yeah, yeah, I was going to say Volk. So, so that's yeah. it was on Volk. No, yeah, Volk for the title. Um, so, yeah. Um, but yeah, but Ortega's been on the sidelines for a little bit, but his last fight was. A TKO lost to Rodriguez. So Rodriguez probably fancies this going into uh, the rematch. Uh, Ortega, as you say, insane jiu-jitsu called T-City for a reason in terms of that's Triangle City for anyone that doesn't know. He's got insane flying triangles that uh, he, he can do in the um, jiu-jitsu game. But that that's a far more interesting fight for me. But it, it, they're, they're both strange fighters that they've had these these phases where they were the the next great thing in the featherweight and then they lose and then they kind of couple of losses and fallen off. And then they've kind of sort of found their way back to this point. But given the point that we've talked about with Volk probably not getting an immediate rematch, you know, two against four, this would seem to make the obvious sense for winner gets to Pura next. Yeah, I think 
have the ratings not changed? And when did you you've taken a screenshot? Of this is this pre UFC two nine eight because I think uh, Tapura was four. Um, Otapura was three, either, either way. But Rodriguez is three now, I think, and Ortega's uh, four. So I think it's 3v4. But regardless, obviously, other than Holloway... Yeah, well, that would make sense because Volk's probably moved down to one yeah, after uh, yeah. Tapura. Yeah, that would and make Holloway's sense. And Holloway's dropped from one to two. So other than Holloway, this would make sense. And obviously, we know that Holloway's predisposed with um, UFC 300 for the, the BMF. Uh, Gagey. So uh, this might be the gateway to allow UFC Spain to take place. Um, would you want Volk there? Yes, ideally from a business point of view. Would I want Volk there as a fan? No, because I wanted to set that time out that we've just discussed. So you would expect if Rodriguez comes out of this, which I would be backing Rodriguez personally, that would be the next fight. And that would allow your Tapura to have his first title defence against someone who he could feasibly beat, but he could also mess it up quite quickly you've also got i suppose the mexican kind of link all right i know mexican's not spanish but they speak spanish don't they effectively in mexico so you know you could probably sell that as a kind of a latin event that would probably sell quite well in spain um i mean the only other option you mentioned there but no one comes away from a gagey fight unscathed um but i was going to say the only other option is if holloway somehow and I can't see it happening a mile off, came through and walked straight through Gagey and won without much damage. Could he do a quick turnaround to fight um, for the title against uh, Tapura? But no one comes away unscathed from Gagey. It's about as likely as what I said about Volk getting knocked out twice being good for him. Um, it, it's not a chance in hell. Yeah, no, totally agree. And... Um, don't really have much else on that. The only other point I've got on MMA, which I thought came out, which was, sounds ropey as fuck, but doesn't surprise me at all, was Dana was in the press this week that said um, Vladimir Putin was on the phone, I don't know if you read this, uh, moments after Khabib beat Connor, uh, trying to ring him and, and speak to him. And obviously uh, Khabib was engaged in the aftercage melee while Putin's ringing where he's beating up Dylan Dennis and things. But apparently it's come out in papers that Putin gifted um, Khabib over $20 million worth of property in Russia, which I'm sure he probably just stole off people to give to him. But Yeah, he's, he's killed um, about 17 people in that property, hasn't he? And do you know what I mean? Probably. Like Again, you know, I know uh, Khabib is of the view, you know, I made a promise to my mum, I'm not going to fight again. I made enough money. That's kind of quite nicely bankrolled by 20 mil from Putin, isn't it? Yeah, from, <laughs> like, the most corrupt people in the world as well. So, yeah, I'm sure his mum's uh, over the moon with that. Super proud of him. Well done. You took you, you took loads of money off one of the biggest fucking oligarchs and uh, dictators in the world. Well done, son. Instead of starting with the results this week, I think we've got to start. Luckily for you, it's a Liverpool-associated story, which I'm, I'm sure that you'll... Uh, always jump at the chance to speak about. We've got to talk about Xabi Alonso because this race is starting to heat up very, very quickly. Uh, we found out this week that Thomas Tuchel will be stepping down at the end of the season. and He'll be leaving Bayern Munich, which I don't think really comes as much of a surprise to anyone who has seen Bayern Munich's results this season. They haven't been 
very um, on it, should we say. Most people will blame the manager. Most people will blame um, the performances. I think the smart people will blame the fact that Kane and Dyer have taken the Spursy curse along with them to him. Um, so no one's going to be able to win a title with that under the belt. But Bayern now, allegedly, are already in talks with Alonso. Now, it means very little because I'm sure that Liverpool are already in talks. There are rumours that Manchester United are interested, but I don't think there's any worry there. Obviously, the uh, takeover with Jim, so Jim Ratcliffe has, has been ratified this week as well. So they're wanting to get back with the big boys, which I think will take them a bit of a while. But this is all getting very, very serious and very, very real very quickly, uh, certainly for Bayern Munich fans and certainly for, for Liverpool fans. There are rumours that Liverpool are considering other candidates, including, I think, Robert De Zerbi was on there. Um, Amarim is apparently the the main contender if they miss out on Alonso. But clearly, Alonso is the one. And I think from the discussions that we've had, had this not been agreed and, and had uh, Alonso gone somewhere else, fingers crossed for you, of course, I think you would start panicking quite swiftly about the progression and, and the progress that you would see from Liverpool moving forward. What I want to just go through with you, with your rose-tinted glasses taken firmly off and from a completely unbiased point of view, I know it's difficult, but bear with me, is the two roles that are available to Alonso, realistically, being Bayern Munich and Liverpool, and which one is the most attractive job. Uh, Telegraph did a very good report on this, and I won't take information from that report, but what I will take is the questions that they posed, specifically the topics that he would have to consider in moving to one job or the other. The first being the job itself and um, sort of an overview of it. Would you choose Liverpool? Would you choose um, Bayern Munich? Not you, as in a manager at the top of his game at this point in time with the clubs being where they are. Well, you've got a couple of points that fit into that, haven't you? So Alonso does have a affiliation with both. He's played for both of them. I think it would be fair to say he played at Bayern far, far later in his career when he was, you know, older. His game wasn't, again, particularly based on pace. He was a bit of a midfield Terry Sheringham, you know, very, very clever very astute, didn't need the pace because, uh, you know, it was a past master, was a modern day Jan Mulby, could, you know, ping the ball around from the, you know, and land it on a sixpence. But if you look at it that way, he was far more adored and liked by Liverpool fans than Bayern Munich fans, if we start with that point. You've also got to look at the job in front of him. Um, Bayern have a particularly ageing squad. You know, they've got your the mainstays of the squad, Thomas Muller, on the way out, they reckon Kimmich is probably leaving on a free at the end of the season. Even Kane, who they've invested a lot of money in and has dropped off the face of a cliff after his early season form, is, is the wrong side of 30. So you've got, if you text Bayern on, to me, there's a massive rebuild there. So if I were him looking at that, I'm looking for assurances from the board. Am I going to be given £200 million to spend to refresh that squad? Whereas I think if you look at Liverpool, because of the good work done by Klopp last season, you've got a, a not necessarily ready-made, but you've got a young squad that probably doesn't need a great deal of investment other than Alonso putting his own perhaps stamp on it. So I think 
there's there's pros and cons either way. Bayern, he gets to stay in Germany. Obviously, he's, he's there at the moment. He gets to stay in Germany, so he doesn't have to move. Maybe more familiar with that. He can probably take some of his Leverkusen squad to Bayern, which which might be a, a you know a, a triggering factor for him. But equally. I think if he went to Liverpool, because of how good Klopp has been, he essentially, I would think, and as a, this is not with my rose-tinted glasses, this is a Liverpool fan, I think he almost gets a free hit for a season. That Liverpool fans are not with stupid that we are going to expect someone of his young calibre, you know, with a lot of potential, but not the finished article, to carry on what Klopp's done. Whereas at Munich, I think because of how big they are, the same as someone who ever takes over City, they are going to expect after Pep immediate and continued success. So what happens if he goes to, he chooses Bayern, maybe he makes some of that investment, results don't go his way. And we've seen Bayern over the last few years, they've been quite ruthless where they haven't done very well. Tuchel didn't last very long. Um who was it before that that had a little bit of a rough patch and they got rid of Hansi Flick? Didn't last particularly long. So if you were looking for job security, you would probably favour Liverpool again over, over Bayern. But if you wanted to have go straight in and have a better team and a chance of probably winning the league immediately, Bayern might well be a better option. So that there's a lot of pros and cons on either way. I would say. Keep the success point in mind for now, because we'll revisit that as one of the points that we're going to ask you um, in, in just a sec. In terms of the, the pulling power, uh, in terms of the, the job itself, so regardless of, or regardless of the, regardless in a word, regardless of the, uh, the players themselves, the job is easier for me at Bayern. I think, I know that you're saying that they would expect success and they will, they would expect to win the league because I would equate and no disrespect to Bayern fans or, or Germany, but I would equate the Bundesliga and Bayern Munich to PSG and League One. I would equate it to um, you know, Rangers or Celtic in the Scottish League. It's one of those jobs where you're expected to win because your club has a history of not only succeeding, but if you're failing, like we saw with uh, when Jurgen Klopp was in charge of Dortmund, what did Munich do the next year? They went and bought everyone really good from Dortmund that was worthwhile doing. And that's what Munich have a history of doing and will continue to do so. If they take uh, Alonso, it'll be one of the biggest coups in um, sort of recent Bundesliga history because of the stock that's been attributed to him. If he fails at Munich and doesn't win the league, I would argue that actually he wasn't good enough to go and get the Liverpool job in the first place anyway, because if he doesn't do well at a job like that, in the same way that you saw Steven Gerrard did well at, at Rangers, took a slightly more difficult job at, at Villa and failed dramatically. Realistically, if you fail with the backing that's behind you and that sort of role and um, the players that are available to your disposal, you know, like Musiala is, is one of the best players in the world. Kane is still, regardless of his age, one of the best strikers in the world. You're not going to do elsewhere. Uh, going to do well elsewhere because you're going to struggle, even at that sort of stage. When it comes to player power, you mentioned that the squad is 
in position for Liverpool, should we say, where you've obviously bought in McAllister, Slobosai, Endo, Gravenbach. Um, the difficulty you've got with Liverpool and trying not to be biased one way or the other is Salah's going, almost certainly, at the end of the season. Van Dijk is ageing. He would need like, that, that centre-back partnership, whether you're keeping Van Dijk and hoping that he would come back into the better form that he has, which he's shown this season. Um, you would need a new centre-back partnership. I would argue that you're still probably going to need a striker. I don't think that uh, Jota is the one. I think he's very good, but he's obviously injured at the moment. And I, you know my opinion on Nunes. I think he needs support in that. So there are definite things that need to be done with the Liverpool squad. The job that he would take there, if he's successful Liverpool, his stock goes through the absolute stratosphere. Because Liverpool is, for me, in 2024, a more prestigious role. It's a a role that, obviously, you see him challenging for the titles and stuff at the moment. Liverpool in 2024 is drastically different to the Liverpool that Jurgen Klopp took over. And that's obviously entirely to do with Jurgen Klopp and how he's built the club and what he's done for the club. But at this stage of Alonso's career, he's still young. I would argue that it's better for him to go to Bayern, take that almost a free hit, win the league, get your stock to rise, take the Liverpool job in three, four years down the line, and then go from there. I don't think he'd fail at Bayern Munich, by the way. I think he's a very good manager, but I think he's got a lot of time on his side, and I don't think there's any need to rush into a, a job as huge as Liverpool. And certainly, like when Alex Ferguson left, the replacement that they had to do at Manchester United is such a difficult job to take over from Jurgen Klopp when everyone has loved him and everyone's adored him and the fantastic job that he's done, it's almost an impossible task for anyone that takes it over. And the question that, going back to what you said, what would you accept, let's say Alonso chooses Liverpool, what would you accept as the worst outcome in the first season? Would it be no European football, no Champions League football? Would it be not winning a trophy? What What would you accept? Um... I think, I mean, I'd, I'd, I'd take not winning a trophy and coming in the Champions League. So top four, I think would be, um, I, I would be quite happy with that because there's going to be an inevitable fall off. Um, just back to that point, I, I, I wouldn't necessarily disagree with the fact that he doesn't do well at Munich. But if he doesn't, I don't think he gets anywhere near the slack that he get he gets if he goes to Liverpool. So if Liverpool do have a big drop off, a significant drop off from Klopp, but Alonso is implementing his own methods. There's some kind of progress in a different way, you know, towards playing how he wants them to, something like that, and that you know some element of they don't just come tenth, you know, or something like that. He gets a free hit to then build on that. Whereas I think with Bayern and because of the fact they've won 11 trophies in a row, uh, 11 leagues in a row, you know, et cetera, et cetera. If he has six months where it goes badly and it doesn't go right for him, I could see him getting the chop. And where does he go from there? All of a sudden, this massive rising star that he's got is is quelled quite significantly. So... I could see why I, I, I can see why he'd take both roles, and I, I, I agree with you. If he's not good enough to win the league with Munich, then he's probably not ready for the Premier League and good enough for Liverpool yet. But to me, the affiliation with the fans, the fact that he would get 
more of a free hit and more time to embed, bring his ideas, bring his backroom staff, things like that. I still think the more sensible option for him is Liverpool personally. And that, that, that genuinely is without the bias. Obviously, I want him mainly because I don't think there's anyone else we could possibly have. The only other person that I would remotely be happy with, and I don't think I'd be overly that happy with him, is, as you say, Amarim, but sporting. But you take them two out of it. I've got no idea who we could possibly get that would be in any way, shape or form a decent manager. So, um, for Liverpool, for, for me, it's it's Alonso or bust. But I do think there are compelling arguments without all bias aside why the Liverpool is a better option for Alonso at this point in his career than Bayern. It's the same as, they, let's say, they let's definitely say, are. They definitely are. let's say um, Carlo Ancelotti hadn't signed the new deal at Real and was going to go and manage Brazil, which was rumoured. Suddenly a Real coming for Alonso. Now, what would he do there? Real would undoubtedly have the biggest pulling power. They've undoubtedly, now that they've signed Mbappe as well, and that's been announced, got the best team. But what happens if he goes there and they don't do quite as well? He, again, dramatically fails. Whereas if he goes to at least one of those other two, Bayern or Liverpool, he gets to build on his experience, build on that. That Madrid is job is always there at some point in the future for him, as is probably the Munich or Liverpool job, whichever one he takes. He, he will always have the option for managing those three former clubs he played for. Whatever happens, I would say, at some point in the future. Depending on what he does, I mean, in a you look at it in sort of a realistic world, if he goes to Liverpool and takes that option, it's a harder job. I, I don't think there's any sort of dispute with that in terms of the expectations or the, the chances of him winning the league, for example. So it's clearly easy to win the league at someone like Bayern Munich because you pull in power and everything is much bigger in Germany. If he goes to Liverpool, he doesn't get top four, doesn't win a trophy in his first year and finishes seventh or eighth. I know that you say fans would be more forgiving and maybe the board would be more forgiving because of the uh, effect that Klopp's had and people might be a bit more patient. I think you're overestimating football fans in 2024 and how quickly people can turn. You look at Arteta, for example. Arteta in his first season, fantastic um, to, to some degree in terms of, obviously, as a new manager, it's a big role. Arsenal fans, and Arsenal fans are a special breed, don't get me wrong, but Arsenal fans turned on him very, very quickly and have turned on him and gone back on his side and turned on him and gone back on his side within the last three years multiple times. Football fans in 2020, 2024, 2024 are very fickle. And I think if Alonso had the level of failure that we're equating to Bayern Munich with Liverpool, and obviously Bayern Munich not winning the league is failure there. Liverpool not finishing top four, I think, would be failure at Liverpool. I don't think he would be forgiven. I think people would be very quick to say, this isn't working. We need to find someone else. We're going to start panicking. The board might not. But I think the fans would. And I think if you lose the fans, you lose your stock. And unless Alonso then turned it down around dramatically in the following year and finished in, you know, top two, won a, an FA Cup, won a, a Carabao Cup or a Mickey Mouse Cup, whatever, then I think his stock would be almost as low as it would be if he doesn't win the league with Bayern Munich. So there are pros and cons either way. It's a very I mean it's a difficult decision. And as you say, that the one thing I did read which was a real gut punch was that he, at this point, is what it said, and obviously things can change, he was 
slightly favouring Bayern. And as I said, I, I, means I nothing, help, does it? Yeah, it doesn't mean anything. But I can't help but feel that there's, as you say, there's a less uprooting of his family. He gets to stay in Germany. You know, there is, as you say, going into a team that, you know, again, you don't know, but you would think if they're trying to lure him away from Liverpool, they must be giving him some kind of guarantees in the background of, look, we'll back you, we'll give you 150 mil. So if you want to sign Boniface, Fringpong, uh, Verts, you know, your three main, probably they're the probably three main stars of, of the Leverkusen team this season and bring them to Bayern with you, you can do. You know, we'll be delighted with that, I think. And as you say, that that is very much what happens in uh, Germany with Munich in particular. A team does well or competes with them and they just go out and buy the two best fucking players from that team to cripple them and enhance themselves. So you could certainly see at the moment that if there were scales, they might be slightly balanced more in Bayern's favour. And I think that that's only been in the last two days since it was announced with Tuchel. Before that, I was convinced that it was effectively a done deal for us and that we were pretty good that we'd be getting Alonso. But that, that news with Tuchel, the three losses in a row that Bayern had sustained, leaving about eight points clear, has definitely altered the, the the dynamic of it and suddenly put Alonso far more in, you know, in Bayern's focus than he was probably two weeks ago. 100%. 100%. And while we're on the, the subject of Liverpool and, and the Premier League... The title race is hotting up, very much so. Obviously, Chelsea managed to uh, get a one-all draw out of City, which means that the entire thing is back in Liverpool's hands, uh, who are obviously sitting top of the table at the moment. But then City went and won their game in hand. So, it's is it one point, two points? Um, uh, if they win now? their game in hand, one, we're four points clear, but they've got a game in hand. So, we're a point clear and they probably will win the game in hand, won't they? So, it's a point clear. Out of curiosity, why have you and Luton, or in fact, Luton haven't played an extra game, why have you played an extra game than anyone else? Because we have the Carabao Cup final on Sunday. So we're not playing this week, are we, with Chelsea? Chelsea have a game in hand on you as well. You're the only team in the league that's played 26 games. Um, I'm not sure how that's worked out then. But um, yeah, obviously we're not playing this weekend and that means whoever the, the, the other, you know, Chelsea aren't and whoever the two teams that we were supposed to be playing aren't. But um, yeah, I mean, even yesterday, a um, bit of a scare, 1-0 down against Luton at half-time, 11 first-team players out and you're thinking to yourself, fucking hell, we're doing our best to throw this title uh, race away. Um, Captain Verge steps up from the corner, powers a header in. And it all changes from there very quickly. Gakpo quickly gets a, a second one. Um, and then it's Diaz and, and Elliot to, to finish it off. And, to, you know, that's two four ones in the same week. Beat Brentford 4-1 away on Saturday at lunchtime kickoff and looked quite convincing. Um, you know, Mo came off the bench for his first game, goal and assist, which was nice to see him back. And even though he didn't have the best games, still scored an assist. Um, and then that was very encouraging from a character point of view, given we were literally the fronts, the, 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 the three midfielders and the three strikers we put out yesterday. There was literally no one else, no one even on the bench that we could put out apart from them. You know, that was talk about bare bones. Now, they say Mo and, and Nunes should, touch wood, be back for the Carabao Cup at the weekend. So that strengthens that a little bit. But... The injuries are a concern because 
Allison is going to be out for a few more games. There was original hopes that Allison was going to be back, and obviously he's a key player. Kelleher has stepped up in the last few games, to be honest, and actually that looked a, a relatively decent keeper compared to some of the shambolic performances he's had. Um, and uh, but Mo Mo is the one that you you, you miss the most. Uh, but that midfield, as you say, is running on bare bones. Um, at least we've got Endo there in terms of defensive midfield. McAllister, the last couple of games, has been outstanding now that he's been freed up a little bit to stop playing in defensive bit mid and, and been pushed a, a little bit more forward. Was very, very good against Brentford and two assists uh, against Luton. Um, but we've got to grab him back. Um, Jota out probably for the season. Don't know if you saw that, but, but pretty much an innocuous fall. Just guy just lands on his knee, bang, out for the season. So the concern for Liverpool at the moment is, is the injuries piling up and at, not at the stage that you want in the season. I, I mean, you're not going to get much sympathy out of Luton fans in terms of your injuries. I think that the squad is still probably worth about 10 times what Luton's squad was, but it's one of those where the quality shines through, even though it's your second string, so to speak, and there was uh, debuts for two quite young players, I believe, was it um, Dans and McConnell who came on, who uh, did well for the two minutes or three minutes what they came on for by all accounts but um yeah even with the injuries that you've suffered when you're playing someone like Luton and no disrespect for Luton they've been very entertaining this season but you know you get poor Diaz Elliot to some extent this season um McAllister Gravenbach all that sort of thing Gravenbach they are much higher quality and to put a team away definitely shows character having gone one nil down behind and I think you have got the most points from losing positions this season, which again is testament to the character that the team that Liverpool has this season. Um, but it's Luton are a different. The other thing is Luton are a different team away from home. They play very yeah. well. At, I mean, they've got some amazing results at Kenilworth Road. I think it's something like even the games they've lost against the bigger teams. Obviously, we drew with them in the earlier uh, in the season. I think they've only lost against the, something like the top six teams by one goal if they have lost. So they are a completely different team at home compared to on the road. So, um, you know, if that had been at Kenilworth Road last night, I might have been a bit more concerned. But even at, you know, 1-0 down, I kind of felt that if we get a goal, then this this should this tide should turn. But it's nice to keep the title race going. It's nice to have it in our hands because of City messing up against Chelsea. But Back to the point we've made before. Um, I mean, Grant was texting me when when um, not only obviously did City draw against Chelsea, they were they were drawing for quite a sustained period against uh, Brentford, weren't they? And obviously, Grant, who's been on the podcast, is saying this is great for us. This is great for Liverpool and and, and Arsenal. You know, Man City foot. And I was like, mate, they will score against Brentford <laughs> without any like what he, without any doubt. Do not worry, they will put one away, and lo and behold, they do. Um, Grant remains the, you know, uh, eternal optimist. And because Arsenal have spanked a couple of shit teams recently by a few goals, he seems to be even more of an Arsenal fan than usual in terms of her, his overconfidence. But I think we both still agree that City are going to put that power drive and put the hammer down that they will and will probably end up winning it by four or five points. You excited for Sunday? You nervous? I'm expecting another nil-nil draw. It'll be an appalling game, as I say, because it's Chelsea. I mean, obviously, we did Dickon 4-1 a few weeks back, so that. but 
it's the injuries that concern me. No, Allison is, is is a big point. Um, lack of legs in midfield because we're going to have to play those three that played again um, uh, yesterday. Uh, Mo and, and Nunes coming back would make a difference. Just one point, I've got to mention it because, you know, as you say, as much as you rinse him, Liverpool fans do love Nunes. You've got to, you've got to, you've got to give it, you can't take away that finish against Brentford. Running through, <laughs> chipping the keeper. That it's was not more than you would expect from an hundred million pound player. But that is not the man. That is not a goal from the confidence of a man that can't hit a fucking barn door. No. And that that's the that's the great thing on what Liverpool fans love about him. Even when he's as unclinical as he is, he's still full of confidence and he still causes teams problems. But that that finish for me was was the finish of a very very confident player who has no right to be that confident given the goal-scoring form that he's been in. But that was an exquisite finish. The Uruguayan Patrick Bamford. I'm sure he's Bamford <laughs> probably doesn't have nine goals and seven assists in the Premier League this season, does he? Well, he's not in Premier League. Otherwise, he'd have got 10 goals and eight assists. Well, has he got uh, nine goals and seven assists in the Championship? Well, not because no. he's injured. He's been injured all season. Anyway, anyway, he's got the Pusk or he'll win Puskas award this season for his goal in um, FA Cup. Um, no, I, I, did you see what about that one the other week? Did you see it a couple of weeks ago? Was it, uh, yeah, the, the little Rabona from the yeah, the whole guy. It's bullshit. The fact that that's been awarded to him is bullshit. If you watch it, it takes two clear deflections. It's going wide. I don't know how they've managed to I, give that. I still goal. think Ganacho has to be in Bamford's in the conversation. There's no doubt, but. Um, you know, Ganacho's is in there. I, I'll be honest; I didn't see the deflection. Nunes is, that, as well. Uh, no, no, no. I'm, I'm not going to. I'm not going to claim that one. But um, that 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 little Rabona from, uh, as you say, from the uh, Philogene, kind of yeah. right on the. You know what is he? A couple of yards out inside the 18 yard box, just off the touchline. That that was exquisite. Us sort of lower league fans will know all these players and these girls quite uh, intimately. Obviously against Rotherham, the chuckle vision central. Yeah. Um, yeah, I, I'm be honest. I am slightly concerned for you on Sunday. I think it might be one of these where despite how poor Chelsea have been all season and how poor Poch has been as a manager, I could see them grinding out some ridiculous low scoring, either as a nil-nil or one-all on winner on penalties or a one nil just because of the injuries that have mounted up against you and obviously the fact that it's just the type of thing that this Chelsea team would do. They pull and results out of their ass. It's bullshit as well. Well, it's the type of thing that like Potch has had an appalling season, you know, less points than Potter at a stage and Potter was getting rinsed. But I agree with you. I, I it would not surprise me at all if somehow along the way they do us. And, you know, all of a sudden Chelsea's woeful season and even a fucking the Carabao Cup doesn't save it from being an appalling season, given the billion pounds they've spent over two transfer windows or whatever it is. So well, they um, need to be challenging for titles I, I, for that money, shouldn't they? Really, realistically. I, absolutely. And as you say that, but I I, I, I don't disagree with you. I, I've got a, I haven't got a good feeling about um, the, the, the weekend. I, I could... I'm concerned, but as I say, I think particularly with the um, the way that the the injuries are mounting up. If we had the full team to choose from, or even just two or three injuries, I'd be very very confident. But the amount that we've got, that, that you know, Addison in particular, 
Um, you know, if Mo and Nunes come back, that might make a difference. But um, yeah, it can. It does definitely. I, I I wouldn't disagree with you that I could see Chelsea pinching a one nil. It'll be a, it'll be a dog shit game undoubtedly, and I I, I could see Chelsea pinching a one nil. Well, we'll see. We'll see uh, how that goes. We'll see if. Uh... This time next week, when we're doing this, Leeds are six points off the top of the table, and if uh, Liverpool, well, we've got to touch on that, haven't we? Seeing as you're going tomorrow, and it's the, uh, the the top two, the big two clash at the uh, Ellen Road tomorrow. So, uh, are you confident? No, I should be because Leeds are the informed team, and they've been pretty dominant, and um, no one's really be able to lay a hand on us, which is knock on wood, and that's the kiss of death in it. Um, if I had any salt, I'd throw it on my shoulder, but. The the best part of this is Leicester, and we've talked about this early in the season, uh, Leicester had basically got to the point where they were 17 points clear, they were winning the league, they were done and they were promoted. If Leeds win on Friday, that gap is now suddenly six points. There are teams, I mean, Ipswich are currently level on points with us. Um, Southampton are, I think, either one two or two points, points behind. I've got, yeah. I've got it in front of me here. I thought no, I'd pull it up. So that, that six-point gap between, let's say, Ipswich do win, let's say Southampton win this weekend as well, you're at a point where, actually, Leicester, having been promoted eight points by Christmas... Eight across the top four. Yeah, yeah. That's, that's very close. And Maresca was asked about it today, funnily enough, um, Le- uh, Leicester's manager, is this a big game Friday? He turned around, the, the cheek, I don't know why he's done it, but it's, I think he's inviting more pressure on himself. The cheek, he turned around, he said, it is a very big game for Leeds. For us, it's just another game. I'm like, you wanker. Yeah, but that's the trying to deflect, isn't it? I think that's that's that classic deflection. But um, Sweat dripping I mean, off his head as he says it. It definitely shows you that, you know, you are, whereas, you know, two or three back Saints were the team that, and I, I was saying to you that I was convinced that Saints were going to power through and, you know, to your credit, you were like, nah, not bothered. And, and they've suddenly had a bit of a blip. Leeds have carried on winning. And I, I'd be, I, I think you touched on it in a, in a previous po- podcast, but I bet you, if you look back at, see, at seasons gone, you know, at th- the 33 game stage, um, probably something like eight out of the last 10 years, that would have put Leeds top by a mile. But in terms of the records, which makes this is a really interesting match, particularly for the, the, the you know the neutral, um, you know, like me. So Leeds have joint top best form in the league in terms of home form. That is sixteen games and forty points, thirty-five goals for eleven against. Leicester are also have forty points, but they've played a game more and they've scored a goal less but the equal number of uh, goals conceded. Away record, Leicester have the best away record by a mark, by six-point margin, 16 games played, 35 goals, 15 against. So you've got the best home team playing the best away team. So it really is, and obviously they're the top two. So this is a genuine top of the, about as, you know, as, as genuine as you can say, top of the table, best home form, best away uh, team, you know, should be an absolute ding dong of a, a match, which is therefore the kiss of death, which means it's going to be a painful nil nil. nil, nil. Um, so, but as much yeah. as I would want to win it, I would take it. If you give me a draw now, I'd take a draw. I think it would be a very good result for Leeds. Even with Leicester, uh, sorry, Ipswich with you equal on points? 
Yeah, I've had a look at the run. So the run-in for Ipswich, the next few games, they have a, a, a little bit of an easy run. They're playing sort of a few teams in the bottom of the table. Made hard work of Rotherham, though, didn't they? Exactly. You know, exactly. So, I mean, they, they are struggling Something and they are getting very, very lucky. Yeah, they are. Yeah. They definitely seem to be getting luckier and luckier. So that luck at some point has got a drop, whereas Leeds have been consistently, you know, Leeds haven't been jamming games, have they? They've been winning no. quite convincingly, not getting if... last-minute winners. If we came out of win as winners on Friday, so tomorrow, um, obviously by the time this goes up, it'll be today. If we come out of winners, I honestly think that we're at a position where Leicester will start to panic because that gap is significantly smaller. And I think Leeds, with Farker's experience of being a second half of the season manager, where his Norwich teams basically turned it on. They went on these ridiculous run streaks and just kept winning and no one could ever touch them. And they won it at a canter at the end on both seasons. I think if they win this on Friday, they are becoming very swiftly a favourite for promotion. I'm not saying they'll win the league, but I think, fingers crossed again, knock on wood, you could definitely see him finishing comfortably second at that point. Yeah, and you, you know, I'd be the whole first to hold yeah, my hand up. All right, it's only two points, so but I was the, the the run of form that Southampton were on, I was convinced that they were going to pip you to it. They have, as you say, I'm not quite sure what their recent form is, but it's absolutely dropped off the face of a cliff in terms of um, you know, they've had a couple of losses in the let's say they've dropped off the face of the cliff. I'm just looking at it now. The Three. last six games, they've won four and lost two. They've yeah. just lost two games that you wouldn't have expected them to, i.e. at home to Hull and away to Bristol City. So, um, you know, had they won those two, then they'd be looking, you know, a few points above you. But it's definitely testament. I think Leeds's sort of win streak has gone under the radar. And if I look at this now, what's that? So one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten. 11, ten wins out of 11 for Leeds. You know, like that. yeah. That's... That's promotion form. We've got to keep it up and there's a long way to go. And like you said, because of how close that top of the table is, all it takes is for Leeds to have two bad weeks and all of a sudden... Well, that draw is in the FA Cup against Plymouth. So that, that puts you on 10 wins in a row in the league. Now, the only thing you've got to look at below that, before that, you then had four games, or sorry, five games where you lost three of them. Lost three of them, yeah. So, you know, um, but... You know, that, that the consistency yeah. is, 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 is there. Ten wins in a row, you know, is going to thrust anyone. You know, not being funny, if West Brom probably, you know, sat in fifth, 55 points compared to Southampton on 67, those other teams are going to drop points. If West Brom win 10 in a row, they're probably suddenly in contention potentially for second. It's that type of league in the same way as, you know, like the, you know for the top four uh, this season in, in in the Premier League, so but it's it's certainly looking good for Leeds. And as you say, as much as um, you know, I was not against Leeds because you know I live in Leeds. I love when Leeds are in the Premier League. It, the whole feeling around the town is different. I've never been anywhere where there's such a different feeling. I want Leeds back in the Premier League, and I'm glad that they're making my me eat my words at the moment. When I thought Southampton were going to do it, that I'm delighted that Leeds are proving me wrong. Hold off on that for just, a, you know, give me a few more weeks before we start thinking, oh, I'm glad you proved me wrong. So wait till the end of the season and we're promoted and we can celebrate in Ponte with a beer. That'd be a... That's the dream, isn't it? That's what we want. Yeah. I mean, I, I think, as you say, the league, even you, even as the most optimistic, would 
probably say that's out of contention, even if it's dropped to six points. But I would you be? Would you not be? Uh, surely, if I offered you second now, you'd snap my hand off. He's like, I couldn't care less about a fake trophy. Exactly. Yeah. If you go up, that's all that matters, isn't it? So, as you say, let, yeah. let's be clear. Second is all that matters. Get the tri- champion, yeah. winning the Top two. winning the championship doesn't mean anything. Promotion means everything. So, everything. If, if, if I was a Leeds fan, I literally, as you say, so, you know, snap your hand off a second now. Done. There wouldn't be Don't a single Leeds me. fan that, yeah, not a single Leeds fan would say, oh, I'd rather have a Titan. They'd be like. Just give me that second. Yeah, Call the just get me up. End. Just get me up. Yeah. Get me up. Give us get out of this shit only question. Only question is then that I mean again. I suppose we're going slightly off topic here, but I feel like Fark is one of those ultimate superb and actually I know what you're going to say statistically yeah. the best championship manager ever in terms of win percentage. I don't feel he's quite good enough for the Premier League. Yeah, I'll be honest, I don't think I can say either way. And the only reason I would say that is the two times we've been in the Premier League are with Norwich. Both times he's received no backing. I think one of the times we looked at, weirdly enough, at the start of this season when Farker had been appointed at Leeds and he'd basically, I think they'd sold or they'd made more of a profit having been promoted as something stupid. So I, mean, I think they spent about no £5 backing. million pounds, so said, There's no five backing. Quid. And, and yeah. as you say, will the 49ers go in and, and give him some backing? But he feels like one of those managers for me that is undoubtedly a superb manager in the championship. I just don't know if he's quite got it. And as you say, it could just be circumstance. Norwich is probably not a great example um, on its own. And, and, you know, the backing he didn't get, he will get more back in with Leeds. Um, the problem that you've got is every time now that the teams go up, you just have that feeling that the three teams that go up, there's such a golfing class between the teams that are still in the Premier League. Now, you could argue someone like Palace, you know, Palace are not a great team. If Palace don't do very well this year, despite, despite appointing the new boss, let's say they got fleeced in the summer and Elise and as a suddenly yeah. went, they'd be in they'd be in a whole world of shit. They could easily go down. You know, Fulham doing really well at the moment. Forest. Forest, always on that cusp. So, so that there are certainly teams on in there that could get sucked into a relegation battle, undoubtedly. But even Leicester, how good they're doing this season, I will say now, whatever three teams go up this year will be the favourites to go back down again next year would be my Almost guess. certainly. I mean, let's hope all the Huster and, and Buster from um, the 49ers in that when they get back to the Premier League, they will invest heavily, would come to fruition. But fingers crossed we're talking about this in you know, two or three months' time, saying, oh, well, they were really good, they got promoted. Do you think Farke can do it in Premier League? Do you think they'll invest? Because then, obviously, that will mean that uh, I'm very, very happy, lad. But the best uh, hope you could have, probably, if you're being honest, is that because of the point deduction, Everton go down and somehow Luton manage to pull it off and stay up, because then you would fancy one of those three teams going up being better than Luton, wouldn't you? That would be yeah, kind easily. Of, uh, the ideal scenario, a Forest or an Everton going down. And you think to yourself, do you know what? We we are probably better than them. So, um, but obviously Luton are now because of goal difference back in the the relegation zone, and it is the bottom three: Burnley, Sheffield United on thirteen points, cut adrift. Luton credit where credit's due, twenty points, given that they've got the most dog shit team probably ever on paper. 
Um, you know, to be at 20 points equal with Everton, even though Everton have had the points deduction, is very, very good work from Rob Edwards. I think you've got to give him massive credit. Yeah, absolutely. And we'll see, obviously, how they go this weekend as well as uh, the big games that we've talked about before in terms of Leeds, Leicester and uh, the Carabao Cup final. But uh, no, that's all for us this week. Thanks very much for listening and we'll speak to you next week. 